HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Monica Watrous, Managing Editor of Food Business News, which covers the latest trends, innovations, and developments in the food and beverage industry. Monica spearheaded the launch of Food Entrepreneur, a supplement appearing in Food Business News print magazine and online at foodbusinessnews.net. She's also organized and hosted multiple virtual events featuring emerging brands and cutting edge concepts. She's a lifelong foodie and a champion of startups and disruptors in the consumer packaged goods landscape. Welcome, Monica. Thank you. It's such an honor to be here. Yeah, I'm... I. I was happy when we were able to schedule this as sort of like a post-expo, you know, roundup in a way, I don't mm-hmm. know, retrospective, postpartum, I don't know what we want to call it. Um, but now I'm sort of like, the expo feels like a long time ago and it was only uh, like two weeks ago. So it's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, I um, just came back from a different yeah. conference uh, earlier this week, so I think I have to remember two conferences ago where I was and what I was seeing. Right. It's, you know, it, time goes quickly in this world uh, today. Um, so I wanted to start off, I mean, I think I've been, you know, you're one of those people sort of in the industry who is a... Um, a a journalist of the industry, but also clearly sort of a a genuine cheerleader of the industry. It's like you're in it, but you're not exactly in it. Um, and I think that 
there are very few people like you because it's really nice. You, you genuinely want all of us to succeed. It seems like you are cheering us on while also telling the truth and reporting on what's going on. Um, but it, it's, it's really nice. And I guess one of my first questions for you is like, how did this happen? How did you come into being a champion of consumer packaged goods startups? Like what was the route there? Yeah, so my background is journalism. Uh, I went to the University of Missouri for a degree in magazine journalism, and I worked at newspapers. And then uh, a little over 10 years ago, I found myself at Soslin Publishing Company and Food Business News. And I didn't have any previous background in CPG. I learned it through this job. Mm. And somewhere along the way, I just fell in love with the industry, the people, the passion, the entrepreneurial spirit. Um, the innovation, the drive to solve problems. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess it just kind of happened. And um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's a fun industry. I mean, I haven't been in it for that long either. You know, I was in like the New York hospitality industry for most of my professional life and then moved over to this quirky family of CPG like things. And it's so, it, I mean, it, I think needless to say, it's in a, it's in a bit of a tricky spot these days. Um, you know, before we were recording, we were talking about sort of headwinds and tailwinds all coming at the same time. Today, I was talking to an investor of mine who is also fundraising. They are, unsure about their fundraising, you know, companies are unsure about our fundraising. We all seem to be fundraising from the same people. Consumers seem to be unsure of what they want to be buying right now a little bit and the value proposition of certain things. Retailers seem to be sort of vacillating between innovation and rationalization. Um, I guess I'd like your journalistic sort of um, somewhat, I guess, impartial state of the state? You know, how do you see the current situation? Because I think we all agree there's something interesting going on, challenging for sure, and different from what was going on for the last several years. But I'd like your sort of um, take on it. Yeah, I think you described it really well. It's kind of a confluence of challenges and also maybe... Uh, advantages um, for the CPG industry. Um, consumers are, in fact, pulling back on spending, but are looking at premium and specialty consumer goods as a place to maybe splurge a little bit while not dining out as often, not buying uh, luxury cars or going on vacations, but maybe um, deciding that indulging in an $11 brownie at Erewhon is worth it. Um, I do think that it's a very challenging time for um, small brands and startups, especially those that are trying to raise money right now and, and um, hold on to their their cash. Um, it's It's a tough time to innovate and to bring new products to market. But I would say that the energy at Expo West kind of said otherwise. So... 
I don't know. It's it's a really strange time. It's not something that I've experienced in the in the short amount of time I've been covering this industry. But I'm I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic. Um, but at the same time, wary that it's going to be tough for the foreseeable yeah. future. Well, in a way, you know, I was talking to someone the other day about um, two major natural retailers, one that rhymes with grouts and one that rhymes with full moods. And we were talking about, you know, are they competitive? How do we see them? How do they see themselves? And I guess, you know, one of my thoughts is like, everyone has to right now decide where they are going to win because you can't win everywhere. Costco figured out where they win very, you know, a while ago and they have stuck like so true to it. Um, and they are who they are, and that has worked for them. I think, you know, a natural retailer is going to win in experience and, you know, the feeling, the brand, to your point, like, if you are a place where someone's going to go buy, you know, a gazillion dollar brownie, lean into that. Don't try to be anything other than that. It's almost like, Everyone across the industry, whether it's a brand or a retailer or even an investor really needs to figure out like who they are and what their point of differentiation really is. And that exercise can never be bad. You know, it's, it's almost like a very healthy exercise to do. And it seems like now everyone has to do it. Does that track? Yeah, it's interesting because I think that that's so important to sort of pick your lane and stay in it and and figure out who you are, but don't try to be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's a lot of power in pivoting and adapting Mm -hmm. and figuring out, you know, if the strategy that you had two, three, 10 years ago is still relevant and is still going to win in today's marketplace. Yeah. And I mean, that's why I think to your point, there is the, the optimism here is that, you know, whatever necessity breeds creativity or, you know, tough times breeds ingenuity, whatever the expression is, it really is an opportunity not just to go sort of like line by line through your, you know, your budget and your P&L and like what you're spending on, but to really hone in on does every skew have a reason? Does every channel have a region, a reason? You know, does every retailer have a reason? Does everything you're doing have a reason? And does it all ladder up to this kind of who you are? And my impression, and I guess, you know, is that while there might not be as much innovation for innovation's sake, it feels like the brands that are going to be in a position to innovate are going to do, I I feel like, really smart things that make sense for for their consumers. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's just it. And and to the channel strategy, all of it. I think this is the time to be very focused and targeted and not get distracted by what your peers are doing in this space. If they're getting tons of new accounts and adding new line extensions, that may be working for them, but don't feel like you're falling behind if you're not doing the same thing right now. And we were just saying, like when we were talking a little bit before about Expo West and, you know, I think there were 3000 brands exhibiting almost a third of them were there for the first time. I was surprised by that. 
I, I, I guess I was really, I don't know. Did that number surprise you? Like, does that feel like a lot of new brands this year for at a weird time? So yes and no. I think the reason there were so many first timers is because, well, for two reasons. Um, one being that I think there are a lot of people drawn to this industry. The barriers are low to launch a product and um, entrepreneurship is sexy on its surface. So I think that a lot of people are, are being drawn into um, the sort of the fantasy um, of, of starting a food business. At the same time, I think a lot of established brands who may have been exhibiting previous years are pulling back and not and choosing to not exhibit at Expo West, you know, recognizing that this is maybe not the best use of marketing dollars right now. Um, they have, you know, they want to focus on the existing distribution they have and not try to go out and win new retailers. And for whatever reason, a lot of established brands that I'd seen in the past at Expo West were not there this year. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And I mean, before we go to the break, I kind of would love to hear sort of like your overall, you know, thoughts on the show, like compared to other years and we'll get deeper into it after, but like just your general takeaway, you know, what, what were the kind of couple things that really stood out to you or didn't stand out to you? I always feel energized after Expo. I feel like there's so much great energy and passion and inspiration at that show. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's the biggest show in our industry and the biggest launch pad for new innovation. But I will say there probably was also that sort of cautious optimism we talked about or um, maybe a general feeling of, you know, who's going to make it um, to next year? Um, with with all of the challenges that we're facing in our industry. So I would say in general, a very positive and exciting show, um, but also maybe just uh, a little bit of uh, fear or yeah. concern about the future. I mean, I think that's a lot. I think I've, I had this feeling like everyone was huddling together. I hmm. That was like the theme that kind of kept emerging for me. Like I saw so many joint happy hours and sending people back to other booths and so many people that were using other people's booths. Like we, we, you know, we didn't have a booth, but two different brands used our chimichurri. Like I felt like there was all of this collaboration and like brand friends kind of sticking together, sort of like if we hold each other tight, we'll make it through the storm feeling. Yes. And I think that perfectly sums up like there was this energy and there was this kind of like optimism, but there was also very much like a, but we know what might be coming around the bend and we're going to yeah. have a hurrah right now. Right. Kind of like a dark cloud a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, not to be going into a break on a dark cloud, but, <laughs> but we're going to take a little break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about all the good stuff. So we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, mm -hmm. incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. 
you can pop over to the quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, And so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, And that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital online. At the end of the course, students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like what is rennet and like why is this cheese so expensive and can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheeseStateUniversity.com. I'm back with Monica Watrous, Managing Editor of Food Business News. Um, Okay, so we were talking a little bit about Expo before the break. I do want to get back to Expo, but I also, you know, you are a a journalist. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of brands, you know, have this feeling of like, if only people knew how well we were doing XYZ or how, how different our XYZ is. And to your point about not going on LinkedIn and like being jealous that people are like talking about how many doors they're opening, et cetera, you know, I think there there aren't that many outlets to talk about our industry or to talk about our products. Um, and and you are in one of them. Um, so I guess question is, you know, what do you like to write about the most? What as a journalist who does write about our industry is juicy to you or when you hear it, you're like, ooh, hmm, I want to get in there. Um, Is most of the stuff incoming to you pitches or are you kind of seeking things out? I guess those are the two first questions. So I get so many inbound inquiries from PR firms as well as founders, you know, lots, lots of brands that, that want some publicity. And I appreciate all of it. I I read all of it. I look at everything. I make assessments on what I can cover and what might have to wait a bit um, until I have a little bit more time to work on it. Um, As far as the kinds of stories I like to cover, I love writing about new brands that may not have a lot of exposure already. Mm -hmm. Um, It's exciting for me to be able to offer that first bit of press Mm -hmm. and also to sort of get the scoop or break the story on a really cool brand doing something completely new in the market. So what really um, draws my attention are brands that are doing something really innovative um, in terms of uh, an ingredient or an application that just isn't really being widely used um, or sold. And, um, And then, you know, secondarily, I really love founder stories. What was it about this, this concept, you know, what inspired the founder to create this, you know, a lot of founders come from different industries. And I think it's really fascinating to me to hear why someone would ever want to (laughs) start a food company. Um, But at the same time, I have, you know, so much respect and admiration for for people who do. So um, I guess that would be, you know, that's what stands out um, to me when I when I see some of these pitches coming through. It's funny because I had a guest on last week and it was, it, she's a marketing person, but, 
you know, how often do you get to talk to people who you work with about like what their mom did for a living? You know, and hearing her story, like she had a musician dad and she had a school teacher mom. And I'm like, oh, of course, that makes so much sense. Or like, I don't know, my Albertsons buyer has like a, you know, master's in like U.S. Russia relations. (laughs) You know, like I would never know that if I didn't have the chance to interview, you know, her for this show. Like I see there's something it's so interesting. I kind of I. I totally hear you because there's this through line from something in their background. I mean, not in the case of Andrea, who who's now a buyer, but like there's there there's this like fit that happens. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like their life story kind of all converges into what they're doing. And the road is weird and sometimes very convoluted, but kind of ends up them trying to solve a problem that that they saw in their own life. And it's really beautiful a, a lot of the times. You know, sometimes it's it's not, but for the most part, that's kind of been one of my favorite parts about doing this show is just hearing why someone became who they became and how the product that they make is sort of an extension of that identity. It's I I can see why you enjoy it. A hundred percent. And I feel like in general, we're drawn to human interest stories. And that's why, you know, how I built this and Shark Tank are so popular. People want to hear about the personalities behind these products yep. and to and to see sort of, you know, that that light bulb go off or that that connection being made. And it's super fascinating when somebody who's like a lawyer goes in and creates a frozen <laughs> waffle company or right. a person who was a pharmacist <laughs> starts a beverage company. Right. Like what, you know, I mean, it, it's just so compelling to me. Yeah, no, I agree. And then I guess the other question is like when people are pitching you, aside from sort of the content of the pitch, like clearly you like something innovative or you like a really good human interest story. Is there a particular just formatting or way that they do it or cadence that you find either to be annoying or that you find to be like, oh, I'm more interested in this because of the way that it was put in front of me? I think providing context, uh, you know, whether it's looking at like the big picture of the category, like saying I'm introducing a line of, um, you know, condiments that are inspired by my Filipino heritage and it doesn't exist, but, but it's important because, um, you know, Filipino Americans make up this much of the population, you know, I mean, to like create the business case, I guess, in a, in a way that you would try to create that case for your investors or retail buyers. I think that those types of hooks are really interesting and, and usually grab my attention. Um, I feel like you probably couldn't provide too much information that I could, you know, find something if, you know, you share as much detail as possible on what inspired the launch of the company and what your future plans are. Um, so I don't know. I mean, some, some, I don't want to speak for all journalists. I think some would say, just get to the point, make it quick. I don't have time to read through a, a life story, but in my case, I mean, I kind of invite that detail and that information because right. you never know what's going to stand out. Well, I think that's also you in general. You are my, like, that's kind of why the introduction sort of was the, like, I don't know other food journalists, you know what I mean? I, and I don't know you, you know, intimately, but like you converse with us, you know, you're like, that's the difference a little bit. Like you are in the community to some extent, even though you're reporting on it, 
you're like an anthropologist. Um, and it, and I think that's, you make yourself more approachable. So people feel like you're friendly and they don't have to be super buttoned up to be like, you know, pitching you the way that they might feel pitching like the Today Show or whatever it is, you know, because you're in, you're in it with us, which yeah. I think is really nice. Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that because that's certainly the role that I want to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know anybody else who's doing that exactly. And I think that sometimes when people report on it, it is so much about the fundraising and the VC stuff and the, you know, the rocket ship nonsense. And that's not your angle. You know, you're, you're, I don't know. It's just down to earth more, I guess is, I guess is what's nice. Um, And then I guess my last question sort of media wise is, how do you, I mean, do you have an idea of how influential the press is right now on businesses like ours? You know, is it, are we just all reading about each other? Do you feel like these, you know, having sort of these launch stories or these founder stories just in some way, you know, grows the brand or helps with sales or helps with investors? Like, are you able to sort of opine on that at all once it's sort of out of your hands? A little bit, and only because um, I do stay in touch with a lot of founders whose brands I write about. So I get kind of a little bit of an insight into how those stories help their business. Um, So I recently wrote about a bar company and I don't want to give away too much, uh, but um, after that story ran, the founder told me that a large club retailer oh. w- reached out that day. And, it rhymes with Moscow? <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, it was gratifying to hear that, um, you know, a, a buyer potentially or an executive yeah. at a major retailer looks at food entrepreneur newsletter and identifies uh, yeah. new new products and brands that they weren't otherwise aware of. Um, and that's happened in, in a few different cases. There was another brand that um, got into, they're a, kind of more of a wellness and fitness oriented food brand. And they were able to, they received an inbound request from a, a large fitness chain mm, um, who mm-hmm. wanted to carry their products in their cafes. So, so there have been cool. at least two examples that I've I've been um, brought in on that um, that the story really did get the attention of of an important person that helped bring their business to the next yeah. level. That's incredible. I mean, I think you know it's funny because I remember you know I think my first sort of marketing person that I hosted on the podcast was you know this it was in like. July of 2018. And I remember just being like, is what's the deal with media? Like at this point, is everything just social and everything influencer and everything, you know, whatever the words were in 2018 for whatever it is now. And she was like, there's never going to be, no matter how the media changes, no matter how, what like format, you know, earned attention from the media is it will never be replaced by any other thing like there's still something where 
a journalist writing about you and your brand is always going to be the gold standard. And it's just stuck with me because obviously there's been so much change and now there's, you know, all these affiliate things and everything. But at the end of the day, you know, we all still crave it. We all still love it. It feels official. It feels real, you know, and I think it does impact things. You know, you can tell buyers that you have this many engagements on whatever, but if you have really good, you know, stories that are written about what makes the brand special and the products better, it kind of is unbeatable. So, yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because, you know, I think about when I talk to brands, I think for them, a big win would be to be covered by Forbes. That's like the ultimate, you know, I don't feel that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, you know, it just, it kind of becomes shorthand for this is a legitimate business or a credible business. You know, not a lot of people outside of the industry know about food business news, but the people who read it are, you know, executives at at retail, uh, food manufacturers, uh, investors, like really important people in the industry who can really help a small brand grow their business. And so it may not be the the most well-known title, and it's not something that I see a lot of brands putting on their in the press section of their websites, but I think it is meaningful to engage with trade media because of the audience. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it might not be as consumer facing, but you know, it's funny because I was talking to someone about this podcast and, you know, I said, it's not, it's, you know, it's really just to, it's a, it's a gift back to my community. Like it, there's no, there's no, it's not, if you come on as a guest, it's not going to like make you famous. Let's put it that way, you know? And they were like, yeah, but you know, every one of those people that's listening is also potentially a consumer, you know, like it might not be necessarily a consumer facing. I don't think you're listening to this if you're not sort of in the industry or interested in the industry, but that doesn't mean that people in the industry aren't also eating. So I I just, it kind of flipped my brain a little bit. I'm like, yeah, it's totally good PR for you to come on the show and you know, whatever. So it was just, it was sort of funny, but I agree. And I think trade media you know, again, it goes back to defining what the purpose is, you know, to me, Forbes feels a little like a, you know, well, we don't have to talk about it. It doesn't feel the same. So, (laughs) okay, let's go back to Expo West a little bit. Your perspective on, you know, why brands should be there. And I guess, you know, when they should go there. Like when I hear that there are 900 first timers and there's a question about whether a bunch of them are going to be there next year. My first thought is they went too soon. Um, And they, you know, we've talked about it a lot on this show, like going to Expo West when you don't have national distribution can be a real waste of money and time. Um, Because even if you have all these stores that are interested you're still ways away from being able to deliver to them. And if, you know, you're trying to gather the points of interest to, you know, convince UNFI to take you, you're probably still too small of a brand to spend what ends up being like probably at least, you know, 30 to $50,000, et cetera. So we've had that discussion, but 
I guess from your perspective, you know, you've been there a lot. I've seen your books with the stickers. You've seen people come and go. Your best advice to brands about why they should be there and when they should go there. So I would agree with your point that a lot of brands that were there were probably there too soon. And I think there's this fervor around Expo West or this sort of, you know, like we were talking about that that kind of peer pressure that a lot of brands are exposed to where it's a sense of like, oh, well, if you're not exhibiting at Expo West, what are you even doing? Are you right. Even a brand? Right. But yeah. the last two years since the pre or since the post pandemic, um, I've seen a lot of brands doing the backpack thing where they're going to the show. They have limited number of samples on them. They're wearing their merch and they're still engaging with key stakeholders of their business, but they're not spending tens and thousands of dollars to have a booth. And from the those who do that that I've talked to, it's been a great strategy for them. Um, and, you know, maybe they're doing it because they're not in a place in their business where they can support a lot of POs and, um, you know, expanded distribution. They just kind of want to stay visible. Um, I think that's a great strategy. Um, and I certainly loved seeing so many of my founder friends who didn't have a booth, but were still at the show and still uh, networking and and sort of hustling in their own ways. I felt almost guilty. <laughs> it's funny. I was talking to someone about this. I it's really I know it's like embarrassing, but also like I got I don't know how to even discuss it. But like I felt almost like I didn't want to take any buyer's time because I didn't feel like I had earned it by buying the booth. You know, it's like I I I was there specifically really for like one or two very key sort of 15 minute meetings with buyers. And I, we weren't, we weren't launching anything new to your point. We weren't doing anything, you know, we will hopefully be there next year, but I felt like bad, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Cause if I was like, if I was one of the people that built the booth, you know, I'd be like, Hey, you know, to stop with the backpack people, like come over to me, right. you know, but you know, that's just my little guilty conscience. <laughs> I, I, I get that. I mean, I, you know, I know that they have a ton of um, sort of pre-show meetings and, and pitches with brands that don't have booths like Albertsons, um, Whole Foods, or, or should I be using Rhymes instead of, uh, <laughs> instead of saying no, the retailers? I think you're, in this case, I think you're allowed to talk about it. It's just my, I don't know. You know, when in every sales deck, you have to be like the leading natural <laughs> sales, whatever, like everyone knows what it is. Just say what Rhymes it is. with Schmalbertsons. Um, yeah. um, but no, I mean, I, I think that that's, you know, yes, I, I appreciate that you felt, you know, you felt that, but I also think at some, to some degree, like, you know, you just have to do, do, hustle. yeah, you got to mm-hmm. hustle. That's just it. I mean, do what you got to do to build your business. And then in terms of the why, I mean, it's it for you, is it, is it, you know, I guess it's all of the above. It's probably getting retailers interested, kind of holding your, your space a little bit. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, so I feel like we've seen like this paradigm shift in the last few years from digital first, digital native, um, you know, D2C, like, you know, D2C being the biggest part of the business 
to retail, retail brick and mortar. Mm-hmm. Well, we're seeing, you know, this the pendulum swing back towards brick and mortar. I think because just, you know, digital marketing is so expensive and consumer acquisition costs are so high and, you know, went online and it's just really hard to cut through the noise there. And so as expensive as, as retail is, I think that brands are, you know, feeling as if they need to look back over there. And, and, you know, to your point earlier about how a lot of these different channels and retailers have sort of different points of differentiation. And there's so many more um, out there that are doing some really specific things. And I'll use names like Pop-Up Grocer and Foxtrot. And, and you know, I mentioned Erewhon earlier. Like there are some very specific and, and small scale retailers that carry a lot of clout, I think, when it comes to discovery and um you know, bringing in um, super innovative and up and coming brands. So, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I I think um, the whole, you know, we we all, I mean, people who listen to this regularly, we never had the sort of luxury of saying retail's dead, you know, because like we're a refrigerated brand in a, you know, with sauce in a pouch. Like we were not going to be getting into homes across the United States selling directly right. six packs, um, but. You know, I think that it's interesting because there's also, you know, what people, I think we also are all still trying to understand what happened in COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I had Mike from Butcher Box on and he, a couple of weeks ago, and he said something, he was like, your, your freezer is like your savings account. Your refrigerator is like your checking account. And there are times in life where like, you're really just trying to stock up as much in your freezer as possible. <laughs> and then there are times where you're just like, you know, you're more in the checking and you're like pulling things out. And I also heard that like people right now, a consumer, and this is just anecdotal, but someone said something that I thought was interesting, which was like consumers right now are, they're more comfortable spending $5 on a smaller size than the 15, which would give them more value, but just the absolute dollar amount is a little bit higher. And that's impacting obviously club for sure. And that's that hasn't been, it's like there's something going on, I think with consumer behavior, you know, in COVID people were just so bored and so nervous about like existentially that like, getting the dopamine hit from A, buying something online, but B, getting a box delivered to their door and unpacking it, like, you know, and filming it on Instagram, like there was something there. I think that behavior has probably largely passed Mm -hmm. a lot. I don't see that as much. Are you seeing the same thing? Yeah. I mean, I know in the early days of COVID, when people were going to the stores, if they were going to the stores, there wasn't a lot of room for brand discovery. And not only because retailers were just focused on keeping the essentials stocked on shelves and weren't taking in any new innovation, but because nobody wanted to spend any time in the store. They wanted to grab their toilet paper and their milk and hand sanitizer (laughs) and and get the heck out. And so I, I don't know if, you know, the retail environment has become more inviting. I know a lot of retailers are focused on creating more experiential 
um, environments for shoppers. Um, or if people, I mean, I can't, I can't speak for everyone. I can't apply my own personal lens to everyone, but like my primary form of entertainment is going to, um, you know, sprouts or whole foods on a, af- on a Sunday afternoon and walking around and seeing if I can find anything that I didn't know about yet. And mm-hmm. so, um, I-, I think to an extent, a lot of people, I call us purple people, <laughs> purple people. I do. I- purple people. I don't know why that I just like, there are people in the world that love the grocery store and I happen to love the grocery store. I remember Federico who used to like run sales at Chobani his joy in life as a kid was going to the grocery store. Like there are people like us. I mean, Amrit, you know, Mm -hmm. she wants to get married in a grocery store. (laughs) Like we are a ilk of people that like, there's something in us and I haven't figured out what that, again, that like core little thing is, but we love the grocery store. Yes. Anyway, sorry, go on. No, that's just a fun, it's, it's like a fun group of people to be with because not everyone feels the same way that we do. Well, and I feel like, so I live in Kansas City and we don't have mm-hmm. a lot of those more exciting types of, I, I told Emily at Pop-Up Grocer, like, please open one in Kansas City. We're really cool. And we have a nice airport now. So make it a destination, come <laughs> come to Kansas City. But, um, you know, so whenever I travel to LA or Chicago or New York, I make a point to go visit the specialty grocery stores there and, and the independents and just to kind of see what's going on in those places. So that's, I'm kind of a grocery store tourist in that, in that regard. But, um, you know, I think like it's possible that people are excited or enjoying the store again and are open to discovering new brands on shelf. Maybe part of the retailer's strategy to getting people to spend more time in their stores is to bring in more exciting and new innovation. I know, I, I don't know a whole lot about why Sprouts has interviewed or introduced their sort of innovation section or local forager program. No, I guess it's not a local forager program, but whatever forage program they have. But that's been a hit. And I know um, a lot of brands love that. Um, It's been a really exciting opportunity for brands that, um, you know, because it's a national launch in many cases. And um, it's the first significant launch that a lot of brands um, have been able to to um, yeah, to secure. Yeah, I think Sprouts did a, you know, like what we were talking about at the beginning, they have done a really good job on their strategic plan. You know, I don't know the ins and outs, but you can really see that they looked around and they figured out where we're going to win and they're going to win on people coming in and seeing new things and meals and, you know, that experience of like the farmer's market type of thing. Um, But I think it's really cool. I mean, I think they're doing a great job. People are launching there, like you said, in a way that. They used to launch elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, and I think I think it's really cool, and I think that's they found their lane. Yes, you know. Um, okay, very quickly before we go, trends. Going back to Expo for a second, a lot of shrooms, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> lots of functional beverages and sparkling waters. Yep, um, lots of puffs and bars and balls. Yes. And um, I would love anything else that you, you know, good and bad, maybe not necessarily calling anything out, but 
you know, was there anything like really exciting on the innovation front that you saw? I feel like there was so much plant-based meat. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they're all going to, I don't know. Um, just thoughts. Yeah. So there were a few themes or patterns that jumped out at me. Uh, the thing about the plant-based meats that I thought was interesting is, you know, we, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, like burger type applications um, mm-hmm. or sort of like mock chicken applications. But now we're seeing a little bit more of an evolution there. Um, there were some really good seafood alternatives mm-hmm. as well as some plant-based products that were more plant forward than trying to sort of mimic meat or bleed or sizzle. Um, So seeing a little bit more of the plant forward, plant centric type um, products, in addition to sort of those more techie type, you know, fermented with mushroom mycelia type products as well. Right. Um, As far as other trends, I've seen a lot of non-alcoholic beverages, but with really sophisticated, complex flavors and botanicals. And also in some cases, maybe formulated with cannabis or adaptogens. So you kind of get a little bit of a functional benefit, like a, you know, a buzz or a kind of an unwinding type feeling um, it, without the alcohol. Um, and then also, um, you know, I mean, global... Fl- An unwinding type thing. <laughs> sounds very good to me. <laughs> yeah, we could all use that right now, right? Someone, I was walking by a booth and this woman gave me a shot and I thought it was like a hydration mix. And it was, but it was mixed with tequila. Oh. So I was like, wait, whoa. And then I unwound a little bit. <laughs> Sorry. I think you were going to say global flavors. Well, I was going to say, I mean, global flavors is, is always a theme. Um, and mm-hmm. we've, we've always seen a little bit of a different evolution, either focusing on certain types of cuisines or kind of hyper-focused regional, you know, so maybe mm-hmm. not just Mexican food, but like Oaxacan cuisine, you know, mm-hmm. things that are um, very specific and, and nuanced. Um, I saw a lot of Asian influence at this show, a lot mm-hmm. of uh, condiments, like a lot, so, so many dumplings, yes, uh, noodles, mm-hmm. mochi ice cream, boba tea, um, even things that had like flavors that mm-hmm. are commonly found in, in Asian cuisines. So a lot of ube and matcha and black sesame and things like oatmeal and um, confectionery. Mm. And then yeah. speaking of confectionery, I saw so many plant-based gummies and sort of lower sugar candies. Um, I don't know, not all of them are positioned towards like keto, but some of them were, um, but mostly they were just kind of aiming to be better for you. Um, and you know, however consumers are defining that these days. Right. <laughs> and then digestive health, a lot of, um, functional beverages as well as snack bars um, that are made with things like either prebiotics, probiotics, or postbiotics. Um, Ooh. Yeah. What is a postbiotic? So I'm not really sure, <laughs> but <laughs> I saw a, a beverage that claimed to have all three prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics. And um, there was also this brand called Gut Nuts that um, was a line of fermented almonds, and they were positioned as a postbiotic snack. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Gut Nuts, that's a good... I do know that if you... The minute that you irradiate an almond, you kill the enzymes. Hmm. 
So all and all almonds that are grown and and like made and distributed in America are irradiated by law. I do know that. So if you try to sprout an almond, it's not going to work on an almond that's been irradiated. That's just my science wow. experiment. There's this one brand called Terrasol. They are never at Expo. I don't. I. But they they get their almonds in Spain and then. They're, they're not irradiated. Just a shout out to a <laughs> consumer packaged good company that I love that no one's ever heard of. That's that really interesting. On anyone's, like cool kid radar at all. <laughs> yes. So, but I'm going to look into what a postbiotic is. Okay. Final question. Predictions for next year. You said that you're not sure. By the way, the, their booths are sold out as of now. Oh, wow. Like there, there's no way to get a booth right now. Now they have until like April 15th to sort of finalize that and write the check. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure, you know, people drop out all the time. But general thoughts? Do you think there'll still be 3,000 there and 900 first-timers again? You know, I, I think that there probably will be 3,000 exhibiting companies at Expo next year. Will they be the same 3,000 that we saw this year? Um, no. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what that will look like. I don't know how many new companies will be there. I don't know how many companies will survive from this year to next year. And I don't want to sound, you know, I mean, I want to go back to that dark cloud uh, that we uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) were talking about. But, um, you know, I I feel like for the last 10 years that I've been in this space and I've been attending Expo since 2014, and I think it's always been a bit of a a revolving door or a lot of turnover in this space um, in terms of exhibitors. So I hope the best for everyone and whatever happens, however this year shakes out, I know it'll still be a very fun and exciting expo next year. Yeah. Well, I think that is a very nice way to end. Um, Monica, thank you so much for not only coming on the podcast, but just for, you know, A, loving grocery the way that you do, cheering us on the way that you do, being respect, you know, respectful and responsive you know, you understand that this is just a constant grind and a little bit of your just like kindness and love light goes a long way. So even when you just give a heart on a LinkedIn post, it means a lot. Um, So thanks for coming on. Oh, well, thank you so much. This is actually a dream of mine to be on this podcast. So uh, I really, really, yes, no, for real. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Wow. Jeez. Thanks. That's cool. Um, Matt, did you hear that? You better, you better (laughs) believe it. Matt's back. Matt's back, guys. Matt, the engineer, you've, people have missed you. I'm back on to answer all of your questions about the CBG (laughs) world. What do you got? Hit me. (laughs) Um, Matt's only here for this week. Because Liam will be back next week. But just a big shout out to Matt because, you know, he was there in 2018 in, you know, at Roberta's. And remember, he used to chime in and say, stop with the acronyms or what does that mean? But now you um, just know how to do everything. So I don't, you don't need I me mean, anymore. You know? I, I guess I've, I, the training wheels are off. Yep. Um, so thank you for engineering and everyone listening. Thank you again for everything. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.